Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We are thrilled to bring you someone with a lot of experience and looking at, by the way, yield moves and price moves. Gregory Staples joins us to say he's with DWS, barely described his career out of Columbia Economics with Mutual of New York and also with Deutsche Bank with a tenure of duty there as well. Greg, honored to have you on with us today. Buried in your note is the shock of shocks. This is something John Farrell's <coughs> provided leadership on within the media, and that is the German yield. And the idea that we may finally get a positive 10-year German yield back to the normality of early 2019. What will that signal to Europe? What will that signal to the fixed income markets? You know, Tom, thanks for the uh, the comments. It's going to be pretty tricky. What's interesting today, of course, is that the global sell-off in rates that started in the U.S. seems to be spreading globally. And yes, indeed, the 10-year uh, the boont was last uh, trading positive, I think, in April of 2019. We're within a stone's throw of that right now, and we think it truly gets there. You know, until the, the uh, ECB actually starts to move away from their PEPP program and their APP program, they're actively doing quantitative easing, it's going to be hard for European uh, fixed income rates to go much higher than that. My money is going to flow into the higher yielding U.S., but I do think that there's a potential for a basis between U.S. 10 years and 10 year boots to go as wide as 200 basis points. You know, right now we're maybe at 175, 180, right. and certainly there much north of that, it's going to be hard because of the flows coming out of Europe into the United States. This is so, so, so important, folks. It's not as simplistic. The dynamics here, not the static analysis, the dynamic analysis. What is the behavior, Greg, as we move to a higher yield regime? Describe those flows in the decision tree that people make when they step into the market given higher yield. Well, from a global perspective, of course, the question is, do they want to take currency risk? And the currency hedging component of it is, is very significant. You're not going to go naked currency if you feel like you're going to give up on the currency trade, which you get on yield. So far, it's actually been pretty positive. You're able to still invest in U.S. dollar and hedge your currency risk and come up with something that's considerably above what you're getting from global rates. So we think as long as that holds, it's going to suppress the U.S. rates from going too high too quickly. I think what's interesting over in Europe is they're not just facing higher inflation, but obviously underneath that, support for the Italian government deficits. It's not as if the ECB can immediately step away from their programs, because if they do, they potentially put Italian uh, BTPs in, into some risk as to who's going to take that debt down as well. So the flow is where do you get the highest yield globally on a currency hedged basis? Right now, that's the United States. Greg, can you walk me through your expectations for the ECB, say, against the Federal Reserve? This Fed looks like it's ready to go in March. Does that make it harder, easier for this ECB to wait? I think it makes it very much harder. I mean, I think inflation is still rising over in, in, in Germany. We saw some prints today that make you think the economy there is, is coming out pretty, pretty strongly. So the, the code for the, uh, the ECB for so long has been continue to support the markets with open mar market purchases, continue to have a negative policy rate. They're going to be under some considerable pressure in 2022. 
to lift the PEPP. I think that's going to happen in March. And then the question is, to what degree do they taper down their open market purchases going forward under the APP program? I think they've got to consider accelerating it, given what the Fed's been doing. Four basis points away from that zero level on a German 10-year. As you know, Greg, just the experience of us all over the last 10 years looking at European debt markets, it's what happens in Italy that counts here. Now, in America, we're talking about the prospect of tighter financial conditions and the ability or inability of the Federal Reserve to step back. Does the ECB have any capacity to maintain easy financing conditions for places like Italy? And do they move away? And ultimately, does this European bond market trade like a sovereign or a credit, Greg? Which one? It, within the Europe, that's a very, very good question. To what degree can they pull back and not destabilize the periphery, Italy in particular? And it's going to be difficult, difficult, difficult to do. I think it's going to be a mix of the two. Obviously, there's the sovereigns in the northern countries. It's the sovereigns as they try and nationalize the debt and some of those programs that they they instituted after the uh, the COVID spread through there last year. But there's, there's still concern about what Italy is going to be able to do if indeed the ECB pulls back from their purchases. That part of the market becomes a credit market. It's one to watch very closely. Greg, good to catch up, sir. Greg Staples there of DWS Group. Joining us now to discuss Seema Shah, Chief Global Market Strategist at Principal Global Investors. Seema, it's one day. It's one day of a pretty violent move lower on the NASDAQ and in particular pockets of this market off the back of what we saw in the Fed minutes. Is that one day a flavour of what we can expect in 2022? I think it gives us an insight into the kind of volatility that we should anticipate going into, into 2022. You know, we have, um, of course, we have inflation still very much elevated. So that's putting through some of the concerns that we had in 2021 right into 2022. And then on top of that, of course, we have all of the Fed moves. You're getting tapering, you're getting rate hikes and potentially balance sheet runoff all in one year. So, of course, this is going to be a volatile year. And I think investors have to be really prepared for the kind of moves that we, have to, we might be seeing. Seema, within your very thoughtful note, there's not the idea of a surprise of 2022, which would be a more resilient, higher inflation. Are we changing our probabilities right now? And do we need to game in with a nominal rate move, a more resilient, higher inflation? Yeah, it's interesting with the inflation story. You know, we do see inflation coming down from the levels that we've become accustomed to in the last uh, two or three months. Um, but at the same time, although it's coming down, we're still likely to see inflation settling um, at a level which is higher than what we've seen over the last 10 years. Right. So this is a kind of the above the 2% target. And it's something that the Fed inevitably has got to respond to. Um, and when we think about inflation, I think from an investment perspective, the key story here is, as you were saying before, it's about real rates. You know, what has happened to that? One of the debates that we have on our team time and time again is will we ever, you know, will the Fed really permit uh, real yields to get back into positive territory? And how will markets respond? Um, we go through this time and time again. Um, and, you know, of course, recently with this jump up in real yields, it's, it's a question which is maybe getting a little bit closer. Okay, but let's take it to Principal Global in your institutional clientele. If we get some form of final movement in real yields, even to a lesser negative or even <coughs> excuse me, the plague, a positive uh, statistic. Seema, if we get that move, what does it mean for earnings in the animal spirits or corporations? Don't they do pretty well in a higher nominal yield environment? You know, this, it's such, I'm glad you said this point, because look, when we think about equities, we've got to think about rates, but we've also got to think about earnings. 
And the outlook that we have for 2022 is still a very solid recovery. It's still a very strong economic environment. We can look at the labor market performance. We look at the demand, the continuous demand. And actually, we do see supply constraints easing through the year. So manufacturing um, should hopefully get a bit of a boost uh, coming into the second half of the year. So with all of that in mind, actually, earnings growth stays positive. It's not as strong as 2021, certainly, but it's still quite positive. And against that backdrop, you may not see equities um, doing extremely well, but we do continue to see positive returns based on that still solid earnings recovery. Seema, this is the reason why so many people are hiding out in their inflationary stocks, in particular the banks and other some consumer discretionaries as well. When do you lean against the mood right now and catch the falling knife that is big tech, especially after hedge funds just had the most violent bout of selling for the past four sessions, going back more than 10 years in Goldman Sachs data? Yeah, you know, so we have continued to hold um, some of our overweight positions to big tech. We have been um, really in favor of mega cap tech for a while. We've continued to hold on to that, even as conditions for tech become more challenging. And we have to um, we have to recognize that look, bond yields are biased higher. Okay, we don't think they're going to move significantly higher. And this is key because we do see inflation coming down through this year to a two and a half percent level. We're definitely not seeing the kind of fives um, continuing throughout this year. Um, so we we have that forecast. Now, as we're thinking um, through big tech, we have to think about the cyclical environment as well. You know, the, the work from home, that kind of thing, it's gone. So actually the cyclical environment is not in favor of big tech. But from an investment perspective, we also have to think about the long-term. And you want to be looking at companies which have got those big balance sheets and can continue to deliver earnings. So we actually still think it makes sense to have an allocation to big tech, certainly not as big as we've had in recent years, but we still think it's an area of defense within the portfolio, which makes sense in a year which continues to be challenging. But at the same time, look, mega cap, whether it's growth, whether it's value, I think that's what's key. Um, and with rising yields, it may be that actually mega, uh, very large banks is probably the area that we could see some rotation towards this year. Seema, can we finish on a, a tricky one? What would you buy and hold through the rest of this year? The FTSE 100 or the S&P 500? The S&P 500. Seema Shah of Principal Global Investors, thank you. Tom Porcelli joins us now, the Chief US Economist at RBC Capital Markets. Tom, I just want you to spend a moment to describe how strange this moment is for this Federal Reserve. A conversation about accelerating balance sheet reduction, just as they're still building up the balance sheet and buying bonds through March. Tom, make sense of it all for us. Yeah, well, first of all, good morning. Good to see you all. Um, uh, you know, look, I, I would say that it, it is it strange. I mean, you know, I think I think we all need to keep in mind something. We have a sample of one. Right. I mean, we right. In other words, they did this one other time. It's not like we have a rich history of, hey, this is how it's happened in the past. I mean, they did it one other time. Um, and that one other time, I think, was wildly different in terms of the economic backdrop than than what we're enduring right now. And I think that's the that's the difference. So it may seem like stark contrast, um, their approach, but so is the economic backdrop. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know that we should be so over, overly surprised by this. 
Well, we should be looking at the data. That's what they say. Although it's unclear what data they have been looking at for the past six months that suddenly led no. to their uh, pivot recently. <laughs> and as we so march toward that language. jobs figure uh, tomorrow, I mean, as we march toward the jobs figure tomorrow, I do wonder if there is a threshold at which if the participation rate does not increase or the uh, the jobs number is a very big one, if that could actually force the Fed's hand earlier or if it's yeah. not necessarily going to be that impactful. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I yeah, it's a it's a great question. And, and Lisa, I, I think, um, you know, the, the way you framed it, I think, is perfect. Um, uh, or the way you set up this question is perfect. Look. I, I, you know, the, I think we all sort of appreciate, or hopefully we all appreciate that the payroll report has been plagued uh, by uh, seasonal adjustment issues or sampling issues, whatever the issue might be. I think we all recognize that there's some, um, uh, um, you know, bit of a additional quirkiness to what was already a pretty quirky report. What we do know is that ADP just printed 800,000 jobs, right? Um, uh, you know, the, an assortment of different labor market metrics, including the claims data that just came out, continue to drive home that the labor market is tight. I mean, there's, you know, there, there's really no other way to get the sort of the meaningfully higher wage profile that we have in place than to have a really tight labor market. So uh, I, with all due respect to tomorrow's report, um, I, I don't know that it really makes a difference in the world. Um, I, I think what we know is that the preponderance of data um, from the labor market perspective, really drives home tight labor markets are here, wage pressures will continue. Um, and I think that's the thing that will keep the Fed engaged in part. What you just said is so important. Do you think that markets are underappreciating how much wages you think will rise later this year? Yeah, look, uh, you know, one of the things that, that, that we've said, and we just wrote this in our year ahead, is, uh, you know, with some of the pressure that we're seeing from a wage perspective will actually ease. Now, I want to be clear on what that means, right? A, a nuanced idea. We're writing right now, if you just, uh, there's countless measures of wages. One of them is average hourly earnings. I happen to hate that measure, but everyone seems to know it. So let's talk about that. It, that right now is running at around a 6% pace. <clears throat> what we think happens as the year progresses is, uh, you know, as sort of, you know, look, it's going to be a slower growth year. Um, it's still going to be a really good year, but it's going to be slower growth versus last year. Um, and so what we expect is going to happen is that some of the heat will come out of um, the job opening space, which will take some of the heat uh, out of, of wages. Wages will still remain elevated. I want to be very, very clear on that. Um, but they're not going to be running at a 6% pace. We think that they'll probably be running closer to a 4 or 5% pace. Again, um, I, I think that that's a, a very important nuanced idea that needs to be sort of understood. You're still looking at a really good labor backdrop, labor that's going to tighten over the coming uh, um, uh, year relative to where we are now. But think about this payroll report, right? This is, a, again, another great example. We have been printing what on, assuming, you know, the number comes in close to what we're predicting uh, for tomorrow. We averaged, what, 550,000 jobs per month in 2021, I mean, that, which is a staggering number, obviously, given, you know, what has happened. It's not that surprising. But as we look at 22, you're not going to average 550,000 jobs. You're probably going to average half of that. Um, per month um, over the over the years. So I think that's, uh, again, another important way of, of thinking about where we are from a labor market perspective. Tom, your initial acclaim was on analysis of the wage growth and the many wage growths of America. What's yeah. the character of our wage growth this time around? When you look at labor's ability to negotiate a higher wage, the almost social aspects of it, What's the character of our 2025 wage growth? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that, you know, as, as I look at, <laughs> did, 
2025 is a little too far, far for me to forecast, but but in the current in the in the sort of the current context and, and over the course of the year, and I think even into next year, I think is very fair. You know, one of the things that's been very interesting is if you look at the um, sort of the wage pressures that are in different segments of the labor backdrop. And there's again countless ways of capturing the essence of that. I think one way of looking at that is to look at job leavers versus job stayers. Um, and, and I think this sort of dovetail dovetails with the conversation you all were having a little earlier. You know, it's been it's interesting to see, right? It's you know, do people have um, the ability to sort of demand more from a wage perspective? I, I mean, on the face of it, they do, um, because if you look at what job leavers, um, people that leave a job to take another job, if you look at their their wage rate um, uh, in percentage terms um, relative to job stayers, so people who stay, um, the the leavers are are um, their wage rate is running a full percentage point more. Um, so I, I do, I do think that there's real scope for wage pressures to remain um, fairly elevated in the context of again everything that we're talking about. You do, you are going to have a tight, tight. It, it's not like we're waiting for a tight labor market. It's it's already here, and I would argue it's been here. This is something we've been talking about for for, for quite a number of months now. I mean, we we put out um, quite a number of metrics that show some internal metrics that really show that labor market is tight. And we expect that that will remain that way over the balance of the year. So I think there's real scope for wage pressures to remain incredibly buoyant, even if some of the heat comes off of it relative to where we are now. Tom, you produced some of our favorite research on the economy here in America. Thank you, sir, for being with us. Tom Porcelli of RBC Capital Markets going into that print tomorrow. We've been trying to find excellence in medical voices, and we do that now with Christian Breyer. He's with Johns Hopkins University, truly expert on Thailand and expert on the epidemiology of frontier economies. Dr. Breyer, honored that you could attend with us uh, today. There is a point, Dr. Breyer, where there is a divide, and I would say the divide was a textbook, Morrison and Boyd in Organic Chemistry, and there was a modest book in biochemistry called Leninger's Biochem. Rachel Walensky picked up a Leninger's biochem at Washington University long ago and has had a sterling career in vaccination. Let me cut to the chase. Is the head of the CDC, is her job in jeopardy this morning because of the communication that we've seen? Well, I can't really comment on, uh, on her job in jeopardy with the administration. I do think uh, that they really need to do more uh, coordination across the government, across the administration. And the CDC leader has important roles to play in that, but uh, isn't and shouldn't be uh, the chief voice of the policy decision. She needs really to be the scientific surveillance data-driven voice. Uh, and uh, and I think that, that as we all know, we've been living through a, an enormous surge with a very infectious virus. The guidance has changed. It needs to change. But the communications from the administration as a whole well, uh, have been challenging. This is critical because the United Kingdom has provided leadership by jettisoning as a general statement PCR. Are you suggesting in the coming hours or may I say days that we will see the U.S. follow suit and jettison PCR certitude? 
Well, uh, that I, I don't know for sure that that is going to happen. I think that there is some evidence that's emerging about some of the tests not picking up Omicron. And we have to remember that the way that Omicron was first really detected in South Africa was because of its variance on PCR testing there. Uh, it's just such a very variant virus. Um, the early studies that are suggesting the rapid tests uh, may not pick it up as efficiently um, are not yet peer reviewed and they're relatively small, but that's something we're really paying close attention to because, of course, people are relying on rapid testing at home to make all kinds of decisions. Dr. Byer, how close are we uh, from your estimations of getting more rapid tests and making them available since this does seem to be the key aspect kind of uh, locking the hands of the CDC to recommend that everybody get these before they uh, emerge from isolation? Yeah, yeah. We were concerned a couple of weeks ago that the increase in testing and the availability and the administration's plan to make them free and more widely available was not going to happen in time to deal with the holidays and the post-holiday curves that we're seeing. And unfortunately, that's exactly what's happened. So uh, the estimate is roughly that by the third or fourth week of January, we should be coming out of this testing shortage. But that, again, is not going to be in time to deal with the post-holiday waves of infection that we're seeing. Uh, so we're going to have about two weeks where people are still going to be frustrated. We won't have enough tests. Don't and do those two weeks are going to be critical. Forgive me for jumping in, sir, because we only have a couple of minutes left. You've touched on, I think, the heart of the problem for a lot of people when they listen to the CDC? Am I listening to the science or am I listening to some version, some convoluted version of behavioral psychology? At the very start of this pandemic, we were told that masks weren't that useful because we didn't have that many masks. And now we're being told we don't need to test out of isolation. And lo and behold, we don't have many tests. And I'm trying to work out whether policy is shaped by scarce resources or science. Which one is it, doctor? Is this policy dictated by scarce resources or science? Well, uh, I'm afraid you're quite right that it's a mixed picture um, and that that, I think, is part of the challenge with the communications. You want it to be driven by science, uh, but there also has been a kind of try to balance, the administration has been trying to balance what the American people will tolerate. Uh, and, uh, you know, a great example of this is that uh, Tom alluded earlier to our lower testing rates than other countries. That is really true. We're still only at about 62, 63% fully vaccinated. So what do we do about mandating, which many people would say the science supports, but the politics uh, of mandating vaccines in this country are very challenging. Uh, and so that balance is what you expect an administration, a government to do. Uh, but what we want to see from the CDC, of course, is not that they are taking those political calculations, but rather uh, that they are really looking at what, what is the best evidence uh, and tracking that evidence as it changes and communicating that indeed uh, there are going to be changes like we've seen with Omicron. It is way more infectious, probably twice as infectious as Delta, but it does appear to be producing less serious disease. The hospitals are jammed. We are back on emergency standing here in Maryland and in Baltimore, uh, but the ICUs are not as crowded and the people in intensive care are unvaccinated. That hasn't changed. That's still the science. Doctor, thank you, sir. Your view on this is always vital. We appreciate your time and, of course, the hard work that you do every single day. Dr. Chris Byer there of Johns Hopkins. Leland Miller, I've got fancy questions on the electrical rate of China, of, country, of cities and this and that. Forget about it. 
All we care about is in counting 29 days, there's an Olympics in Beijing. As you look at the Beijing Olympics, what's the key thing you are watching for politically for the Chinese elite? Well, it, it always comes down to whether she is embarrassed or not. And no one wants to embarrass she because it's bad for their health. So they are going to be uh, putting in restrictions that don't, you know, on a level no one's ever seen before. They don't want any bad news. They're expecting some outbreaks, but I guess that means grabbing someone and throwing them in a room and for the next 14 days afterwards, you know, they don't want bad news. The news coming out of the Olympics has to be the Chinese Communist Party ran a tight ship and there were no disasters. And, and so that's that's what they're expecting. And, and that's what they better see. What is the backdrop of the Beijing economy? And for that matter, the larger Beijing economy is we have these Olympics is a thumb up or thumb down on the animal spirit of the region. Well, it's interesting you term your question that way because, you know, the Beijing economy is looking a little bit different than the Chinese economy writ large right now. Uh, you know, usually you see when we look at this from a regional perspective, you see the coasts having one type of performance and the peripheries having another type of performance. It's very rare that we see coastal provinces diverge dramatically, but but that's what we're seeing right now. You know, the closer you are to Beijing, the closer you are to Xi Jinping, the worse the performance is, the more the COVID crackdowns are, and it's, it's, it's really, really tight. You know, Guangdong doing much better Beijing not doing well at all. So I think this is in preparation for the fact that everybody's so nervous about the Olympics. Well, and when you talk about the COVID zero policy, how does China ever realistically open its borders if they maintain it? And what's going to press its hand to finally give up? Well, look, I, I think either, you know, COVID gets brought under control on a global uh, global you know basis and the, the, the pill works, the, you know, some vaccine just cures COVID for the most part or turns into a seasonal flu or, you know, the government gets past the Olympics, gets past the, the party Congress at the end of the year when, when she will get, you know, re-coronated for yet another term or, or, or life term. Uh, and then they have less to worry about. So maybe they open up a bit because they value the, the, the economic uh, issues more than they do the, the you know, the, the, the COVID, the COVID one policy, uh, zero COVID policy. So a lot of things can happen, but it's going to be very difficult to change course in the coming months, considering how important the end of the year is. One of the reasons why I always love speaking with you, Leland, is you have the on the ground facts about the different economic policies that we hear from Chinese officials. We've heard that they are talking about easing policy. We've heard that they want to expand lending a little bit to support the development, uh, the housing development uh, sector as we see all of the turmoil there. You're saying it's not actually happening. Can you give us a sense of what is happening in terms of tightness of their policy? Yeah, everyone's getting ahead of themselves because, you know, 2021 was an extremely tight year. 2022 is a politically sensitive year. You have the Olympics, you have particularly the party Congress. So everyone sort of knows that policy isn't going to get eased one way or another, maybe mildly or not. And they're getting ahead of themselves. They want to be the first one to announce whether it's a media publication or a sell side pamphlet on Wall Street saying, look, easing's happening. Look at easing. It's not happening yet. Now, do we expect it? Sure, they're gonna to have to boost sentiment sometime in 2022 if they don't like the data. Uh, things are gonna to have to get better. But right now, we're looking at borrowing numbers, which are similar to the lows of 2021. We're seeing pent up demand numbers, which are similar to the lows of 2021, which are the lowest levels we've ever seen in the history of the China Beige Book Survey. So the mm -hmm. idea, you know, we property too, we saw a little bit of easing in November and they reversed in December. So this idea that people can say, look, there's easing going on because we expect easing. It's not happening yet. 
Leela Miller, I want to go back to your work at Oxford, where the wonderful Steve Tseng is truly expert in the culture, the fabric of Hong Kong. If you were to advise our listeners and viewers who are Western banks, what would you say to them about where Hong Kong will be in five years and how they need to adapt? Well, all the problems with Hong Kong, basically that it's being taken over by mainland China and becoming just another Chinese colony, have been exacerbated by COVID with, with these quarantines. And so, you know, you, you can't talk to someone who's, go unless you're Jamie Dimon, you can't talk to anyone who goes in and out of Hong Kong and isn't being driven crazy with these quarantine rules. Uh, it's it's not a way to do business. So uh, the the island has, has, a, has a historically important position. Geographically, it's important. But there's no way that, his, that Hong Kong is going to be this important in five years, it's 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 declining every year. You know, it's 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 becoming too Chinese. It's becoming too closed. It's too hard to travel to. Uh, it's it, it's a sad sad story. Leela Miller, thank you, sir. As always, just fantastic insight into what's happening in the world's second largest economy, the China Beige Book. Leela Miller. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.